Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you could join us as we continue through the book of Isaiah. So I put a little teaser out there in the uh, in the uh, the show title, which or the video title, which will be changed later on. But uh, I'm curious how many of you have heard that Lucifer was cast out of heaven for pride. I know a, a group that I hung out with in college. Um, uh, Hugo says underlying sin, perhaps. I'm not not sure what that uh, <laughs> what, that re- what that's referring to. Already, um, a group I hung hung out with in college uh, was very much into this kind of thing that uh, uh, Isaiah 14 and some other places talk about Satan, who is the the music leader in heaven, and in his pride, he tried to become God and higher than God, and God cast him down and all that. Uh, that is taken from, at least part of it, is taken from Isaiah 14, which we're going to look at uh, today, uh, from the King James Version. If you have read the King James Version, here's what it says in chapter 14, verse 12, uh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And that, uh, so Lucifer is thought to refer to Satan and that he uh, was cut down by God because of his pride. And there's another passage that uh, talks about the king of Tyre in similar ways. Well, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I don't think this is referring to Satan. I don't think Lucifer is Satan. Um, Lucifer is the, uh, the, from the Latin for shining one, which is the term, uh, that is used here in the Hebrew, uh, the shining ones, but I think it's tied more to a Canaanite myth and, uh, is not talking about, uh, Satan. So we'll, we'll catch it in context. I'm, again, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time there. I'm just curious, uh, how many of you all had been in churches, uh, where that was uh, popular, uh, but you'll you'll run into it uh, occasionally where people will say, "No, Lucifer, cats out of heaven, all that." Okay, so as we're continuing in Isaiah, I want to pick up the end of thirteen and then get into fourteen. And uh, the the setting you remember is one of um, exile and oppression of God's people, the Jews. Uh, one of the things that I've tried to do with you. And maybe this even plays into why people would interpret Lucifer here as as Satan and not the king of Babylon is, you know how it is when you are removed from a situation, how, how you can read about awful things, maybe the Holocaust, for instance. You can read about them and maybe you go visit sites or you read a biography or something and and for a moment you can sympathize to some degree, empathize with some pain and suffering and trial and, and you can really be touched in your heart uh, as you think through the, the violence that someone else endured or the hardship. But then you get about your life and uh, you don't really resonate with it so much and so your lack of experience in that can cause you to uh, to see things differently. Kind of like, you know, we hear people today frequently, I do, read stories from them, read biographies of people who lived through uh, socialism, communism, uh, came to a place like the U.S., and they just cannot understand why anybody in our nation 
would be pro-socialist, pro-communist. Uh, and if you go back and you read what the communists did, what socialism leads to, the horrors, it always inevitably leads to uh, a, a, an elite ruling governmental class that just massacres its people. It, it's, it's built into the system. If you read Marx, if you read the roots of it, it, it can only lead there because wicked men are going to become those rulers and they're going to rule harshly. But there's some ideal about socialism that makes people think, oh, that sounds really attractive. Uh, let's try it. And, and be, be their inexperience with the horrors of it cause them to miss or misread or, or come at from their own selfish perspective rather than reading uh, the setting and what it was like for these people. Well, I think we sometimes do that with something like Isaiah. And here's what I mean. I've been trying to get you to take on a little bit of uh, the existential experience of the Jew who's receiving this word. So imagine you're a man, you know, maybe in your 30s or so, and uh, when you were a boy, you saw the, the, the Babylonian soldiers burning down your house and raping your mother and your sisters, taking a sword and thrusting it through your dad's gut. You and your brothers were carried away into slavery, and it's been you know, 15, 20 years ago now. You're allowed to have a wife and your own children, but you're all enslaved to these Babylonians, forced into harsh labor, uh, in no sense free. And everybody you know experienced the same thing. The city was burned down. The temple was burned down. Houses were destroyed. Uh, great violence and oppression done to everybody. And the one responsible, the, the king, the leader who led this charge against your people, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And you've been living with those memories for 20 years. And every day that you go out into the fields to work or whatever forced labor you're, you're part of, um, that's what you're experiencing. If that... If, if you were there, if, that's what, if that was your life, and then you read something like Isaiah 13 and 14, an oracle concerning Babylon, it would have a significant impact on you, wouldn't it? So God says, we saw this yesterday, he's going to bring uh, destruction against Babylon uh, and his people, that, that was all part of it too, but he's going to, he's now turning his attention toward the king of Babylon. He says, verse 12, I will make man scarcer than pure gold. Imagine that. I mean, think about how much gold you have in your house. Not a lot, right? Well, man is going to be scarcer than gold. And mankind than the gold of Ophir, we, we looked at this, the, I'll make the heavens tremble, the earth shaken from its place fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. It will be like a hunted gazelle or sheep with none to gather them. So some men are going to be hunted. 
Some are going to be like sheep with no, no one to protect them and guide them. They will each turn, turn to his own people. Each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through. Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered. Their wives ravished. And now we get some specificity. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. The Medes. This was the uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. This is uh, Cyrus and others. So remember, uh, just historically, we know that Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and did damage to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, but uh, wasn't able to destroy them entirely because here comes Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and they were vile and they were, they were violent. They were, they were wicked. But now God is saying, I'm going to stir up the Medes against Babylon. So there's another kingdom coming that will overthrow Babylon. That's what, uh, what Isaiah is seeing here and writing. These Medes, they take no, uh, will not, they don't value silver or take gold, pleasure in gold. In other words, they can't be bought off. Uh, they are going to do what they're going to do with their warfare. And, uh, and you're not going to assuage them by trying to pay them off. Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. This is going to be a ruthless bunch uh, coming down on the Babylonians. Well, what about Babylon? And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that story, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked, wicked uh, cities. And God sent fire from heaven and you know, burned them all up and left very little left. Remember, Lot and his uh, family had to flee and Lot's wife turned around and all that. That's the paradigm here, the image that uh, Isaiah is seeing to describe what's going to be done to the Babylonians, the king of Babylon, the glory. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar was known for the, the gardens. You've heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon, maybe. You should look it up uh, sometime. Um, lots of uh, advancement in industry and, uh, and administrative uh, prowess, but also beauty, also art. Um, again, those gardens. And it was known throughout the world. Well, God says it's all going to come crashing down by the Medes. It, Babylon, will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls and ostriches also will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. In other words, uh, nothing but animals roaming because there's not, not going to be any men, people. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time will also soon come and her days will not be prolonged. So you see there uh, God predicting the Medes and the Persians will come down and overthrow Babylon and, and be ruthless in destroying them. So that's how chapter 13 ends. Chapter 14 con continues uh, this, this oracle against Babylon but now it does add some different elements. And this, this brings some challenges in interpretation. By the time we get to the end of this section, 
it comes back around to the Medes and seems very uh, near-term historical for the original audience. And you can see the hope it would give them, right? Babylon is not going to be the complete end of all of uh, God's people. He's already predicted, prophesied over and over again that there will be a remnant. There will be some who return. Uh, he will deliver his people, and he's going to send the Messiah and all those things that we've been looking at. Uh, so that's th th they have that hope if they care, if they, if they believe, if they trust. Uh, but even here, we, we see kind of bookended again uh, as we get toward the end of this section. You get the Medes are called out. But then there's some things that are spoken of in, the, in this uh, beginning of chapter 14, especially that, well, oh, just have not been fulfilled. They were not fulfilled when the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. And after the Medes and Persians, into the Greeks, into the Romans, it was not fulfilled. And then, of course, we have the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it hasn't been fulfilled since then. So one of the things that we, we kind of scratch our heads and say, what, what is this really picturing? Is, is this now paradigmatic? Is it, is it about Babylon of that, of that day? Uh, or is, this, is Babylon a, a paradigm of something else, someone else? Uh, as we looked at yesterday, we see Babylon used multiple times in the book of Revelation, for instance. Well, God had said, I'm going to destroy Babylon and it won't be rebuilt. And it, it was never again this world power. And it, it hasn't been inhabited to any extent. And, uh, and yet Babylon is described as, you know, this great woman. She's a harlot, but a great woman, in, uh, a great powerful woman in the book of Revelation. So you put all this together and you start thinking, is this, again, sort of representative of something else? Now, don't go too far there. I don't want us to answer all those questions. I want us to kind of see what the, the Jew would have thought here. And then eventually, you know, you'll, you'll want to go to the New Testament and see how uh, it's used there. But just there are some things here that are not, uh, we know are not fulfilled literally. Let's look at this. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel. So again, this, this view that this is not the end of the story. Babylon is not the end of the story for the Jews. God will have compassion again on Jacob and Israel, the uh, southern and northern kingdoms, and will settle them in their own land. Then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So there's going to be blessing on Jacob and Israel, and then strangers, aliens, foreigners, other uh, Gentiles, basically, are going to come and unite with the house of Jacob kind of a, a peaceful setting. The peoples will take them along and bring them into their place. So other nations will, will take the Jews in, bring them into their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. Here's the part. This has certainly never been fulfilled literally, where there will be peace, God will show his favor to Jacob again, and the nations will become the servants of the Jews. And the Jews will rule over their oppressors. All of this is uh, language taken from the Exodus period. 
where the Egyptians were the captors and they oppressed Israel. And that language is now turned on its head and it says the Jews will be the ones who will make these other nations the servants of the Jews, of the Jacob, and the Jews will rule over their oppressors, rule over these alien nations. It doesn't indicate that it's going to be harsh rule, but the house of Israel, Jacob, they are going to be the, uh, the rulers, the leaders here. Isn't that interesting? We know this has never been fulfilled. Uh, we know that the New Testament takes these things and applies them to the new covenant people of God. Um, in Ephesians 3, for instance, uh, one of the mysteries, one of the hidden things that's now been revealed is that all of these promises given to Israel are fulfilled in the Jews and Gentiles together in the one new man, the church. So we know that much, but the question is how, when, uh, when, it, it, this kind of gets back to the broader question we've been asking. There's peace here and there's, there's a victory for God's people. That would be us. How literally is this to be fulfilled and when, which side of Jesus' return and all of that? Lon says the Palestinians of today, they would say they are oppressed by Israel. Yeah, a good thought. I don't think so. I don't think so because I think, and again, I, I know I'm, I'm introducing a line here that I don't want to spend too much time on, but I think as we look at the New Testament, all of these things have to ultimately be fulfilled in Christ and the church. So I don't think the uh, Jew... Uh, distinction and even the Palestinian Jew, all that, I don't think that comes into play in any of this any longer. I could be wrong, but I don't see it. I, I see all of this somehow pointing toward uh, uh, the church as the new covenant Israel. Anyway, uh, I know, again, I'm stirring up some questions and stuff, but it, that's what I want us to do is just kind of ponder it. And, and maybe, Alon, I think that's worth considering, but then we've got to look at uh, the New Testament fulfillment of, of some of these things. God, he goes on and describes this uh, day. It'll be in that day, or it'll be in the day, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved. Again, uh, they've been oppressed using language from the, uh, the Exodus, from their time enslaved to Egypt. And God's going to give you rest, and you won't suffer pain and the turmoil of that hard work and that harsh service where you had a harsh taskmaster driving you. Um, you were slaves. All that's going to be gone in that day. When that happens, he says, you will take up this, the NAS here has taunt. It's really just the word proverb. Taunt is probably too, too focused on an almost an arrogant sense. It's, you, you're going to take up this proverb against the king of Babylon, right? So again, put yourself in the original audience mindset. You're being crushed by these Babylonians and to look forward to a day when you will say this to the king of Babylon. You will, you will look at Nebuchadnezzar. You'll look at the king who's responsible for all your pain and suffering. And, and here's the, uh, the proverb you're going to speak uh, against him. How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord, Yahweh, has broken the staff of the wicked the scepter of, of rulers. 
which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, king. The cedars of Lebanon, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes to up against us. Right? So you see the imagery here is the, uh, even nature, the trees themselves, because, uh, because of your defeat, because of your demise, king of Babylon, even the cedars are rejoicing. Everyone, the whole earth is at rest and quiet and shouting with joy because you have been destroyed. Now, incidentally, you can see why if you get in your mind that this is Satan, you can, you can see why this would be, right? Uh, this, this fits what we kind of hope and want in some ways. Sheol beneath is excited over you, king of Babylon. Sheol is excited to come meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead. Literally, this is the shades, the shadies, the zombies, <laughs> that kind of thing. It Rashiel arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. That's he goats. Uh, it raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. So we ha have this vision here of Sheol, the place of the dead. When the king of Babylon comes to join them in the place of the dead, that Sheol is raising up all of the, the, the spirits of the ones, that, the shades of the ones who have already gone and the, the, the other leaders whom the king has conquered, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonians crushed all the other nations and Sheol's raising them all up to, to welcome this great, uh, this great king who destroyed them all ruthlessly to welcome him to Sheol. They will all respond and say to you, even as you made, sorry, even you have been made weak as we, you've become like us. You can imagine, right? The, the rejoicing of all the kings that were destroyed by, by Nebuchadnezzar as he comes walking into uh, to Sheol and they stand and say, ha, you're no better than us. Yeah, you had your time uh, on, on earth, but now look, you're joining us in Sheol, and, and you're no different. You're no better. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. The pomp, the music, the, the art, the, all the pleasure and uh, glory and beauty that, uh, that he experienced, it's all come crashing down to Sheol. Maggots. I hope you haven't had your breakfast yet. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Again, you can imagine a Jew who's been so mistreated, so harshly treated by the king of Babylon. You can see them finding some comfort here that the king will one day get his due, that he will not um, be able to tread upon them forever. How you have fallen from heaven, O Star of the morning, this is the, the Latin translated Lucifer, the star of the morning, son of the dawn. Uh, so I don't want to spend too much time here because our time is already fleeing. Uh, so this Hillel is the, uh, is the Hebrew word here. Um, difficult to know exactly what, what's being described. Uh, the Latin 
shining one is what it means. So the Latin is Lucifer. Uh, and, and for a period of time in church history, this was considered Venus, the shining, you know, star, the, the, the prominent star. And, uh, and that, that because of the context here, as they see it was Satan. I don't think so. Obviously that's why I said, uh, Hillel could be referring to the shining one, this, this Canaanite myth of a God. Um, I think one scholar thought it was Ishtar, a God who tried to elevate himself above all the other gods on the mountain and rise to the high place of the mountain to, to kind of compare it to, to Greek mythology, trying to overcome Zeus and, and be the, the highest ruler uh, on Olympus, that kind of thing, something along those lines. So it seems like the imagery is borrowing from a Canaanite myth of a God who tried to be the most high God of the, of the, uh, the other gods and ba- the king of Babylon uh, is being compared to that one. And Isaiah is seeing his demise. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened nations by destroying them, by conquering them. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, this is where people say, oh, the Most High, that's got to be Yahweh. It's got to be God. And he's trying to make himself higher than God. Uh, maybe, or it could be the Most High in, in, in the mountain of mythology. But remember, I mean, remember what we know about Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how God humbled him? You read the book of Daniel, how God humbled him, made him wander around like a beast for years because he raised himself up. He said, look at my kingdom. Look at all that I have done. It's all about me. And God says, oh no, I'm the one who gave you all of this and you will give me glory kind of thing. So you could see how this uh, certainly fits the reputation of the king of Babylon. Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse." You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. So there's a a curse being pronounced on him and his children. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts. And will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and the swamps of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand, to break Assyria in my land. So we go back now that he's going to judge Assyria and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. Do you see here the, the comparison to the, uh, the child that will be born? The yoke and the burden 
placed on the, the child's shoulders, the Messiah's shoulders, uh, and that same imagery here used of Assyria. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And that's, uh, then we get into a new oracle for tomorrow. So, interesting here, because some of this is tied so clearly to Babylon, using the Medes, and even returning back again to the theme with Assyria. And yet there are some things in there, like this peace, and uh, the the Lord's people being the the dominant, controlling people. You, You just think, hmm... What do we do with that? Is this limited to Babylon in the in the in Cyrus coming to destroy Babylon? Or is again is this paradigmatic? Is there is there is there a larger story being told here? That's part of the challenge of interpreting the prophets, is figuring that out. And um and looking at the New Testament to give us. We, we know ultimately these all point to Christ, but how, right? So just uh, kind of fun, kind of hard. And uh, you can humbly see why, uh, well, I should say, that you can see why there's a lot of disagreement and we should be humble about it because this is hard stuff, hard stuff indeed. Uh, Martin, you, you started a sentence there and looks like the rest of it did not come through, at least uh, on my end. Um, so I don't know. If you, uh, if you want to finish that. All right, our time is up. Um, keep reading ahead if you'd like. Keep joining us as we work through this and uh, think about some New Testament passages to see are there, um, are there anything that helps you put together a, a sense of those questions. The answers to those questions I'm asking is how, how much broader beyond just the uh, Isaiah's day and, and the near term there does this fit. Um, maybe read through the book of Revelation, look up the Babylon passages and see why John is given this vision with Babylon as, as the chief enemy and the tie ends back here to, uh, to what we see in Isaiah. Anyway, interesting thoughts. Um, uh, uh, Martin says, what is a good commentary, uh, on Isaiah? Um, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Mottier can't remember his first name. Is it James? M-O-T-Y-E-R uh, is, is probably the best I know of. Um, he, he doesn't give a whole lot of interpretation, which I like, some, but, uh, and he, you know, he's got some perspectives that I would dis- differ on, but it's really, to, to make you kind of stick to the, the text itself, um, it's, it's good. Um, so, Anyway, some, uh, but I would encourage you, if you've been following me very long, you know I'm going to tell you, don't run to the commentaries. Just keep reading and rereading and rereading and rereading the text um, and, uh, and, and see if you can figure some things out on your own and don't go too quickly to someone else. I mean, if, if you realize, well, really, I'm, I'm not trying to be a commentator here other than gluing you to the text making you see what's in the text and looking at the New Testament, certainly when, when we should and can, but uh, I, I think you can, I think you can do this. Uh, Todd says amazing insight on Lucifer. Uh, thanks brother. Appreciate that. And uh, yeah, Martin, I will, uh, I'll not forget about the post mill thing. All right, folks got to run, have a great day in the Lord and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow.
Take care.